Hi everyone, welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I'm Jonah, and today Mariana is not with me. Um, today I have Camden Martin back with me, who has co-hosted um, with me last season, um, and we're excited to for our episode today because um, we're excited to talk about the Saiga antelope. But before that, um, how are things with you, Camden? Uh, very good. Very happy to be back uh, on the podcast today. Um, otherwise, nothing too new on the home front. Uh, how about yourself? Um, I'm about to move back to Texas and start school again, so not super psyched about that. But I did get to visit you in Maine this summer. That was fun. This is very true. We should have yeah, we should have was, recorded while we were there together. We should have done something. That would have been easier. Yeah, yeah. Um, Talk about we could make a puffin podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I was good to visit Maine. I missed, I missed it there. Um, anyways, today we're going to be talking about the Saiga antelope, um, Saiga tatarica, which is a critically endangered species. This is an endangered species episode. Um, but before we even start talking about it, I think people should really look up a Saiga so they could see what it looks like to understand just how cool this animal is um, and, and what they look like. And also, if you Google Saiga, I think there's a type of like automatic machine gun that's called a Saiga. So type in yeah, Saiga antelope. Yeah, Saiga antelope. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's happened to me on numerous occasions. Yeah. So um, anyways, pause here. Look up what a Saiga looks like because they're just really unique and unlike any other animal, really. And there's a lot of things that are unique about them that we're going to talk about today. So why don't you start us off with an overview of the Saiga and what it looks like and background about it. Alrighty, sounds like a plan. And now before I start, uh, I do have a little a comical uh, anecdote about Saiga. Um, so when I was a little kid, you know, uh, like John, I just was so fascinated by animals, especially ungulates, and I was always fascinated by saigas. And um, when I was like 10 years old, I was talking with my mom about what I was, you know, if I ever had children, would I, what would I name my children? And uh, we came to the conclusion that if I was to have a girl, I'd name her Sega. <laughs> <laughs> I just remembered that. But uh, anyways, <laughs> um, so yeah, the reason why, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit why they're so cool and why I like them so much. Well, first of all, on the on Wait, 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 before, you, before note, you continue, yeah. do you still feel that you would name a girl that if you had a girl? I do not know because either she's going to look like what I'm about to describe as a very interesting looking antelope or she's going to be known as an automatic rifle. So I, I have to debate that one. <laughs> um but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, so first of all, like Jonah had said, you know, the Saiga antelope is definitely, unfortunately, critically endangered. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that, how, what led up to that. Um, you know, we, it's, something, it's a species that's definitely known uh, very dramatic uh, population and distribution changes in uh, recent times. It's a species that's both sensitive to natural and anthro, um, anthropogenic uh, pressures. Uh, so when you look, if you've just paused and looked at the Sega, as you can see, it's a very small antelope. It's about, you know, 
60 to 60, uh, 80 centimeters tall, about two to three feet um, at the shoulder. So it's almost like goat size, you could say. Uh, it's about 26 to about, I don't know, 70 kilos or so. So you're looking at about 50 to 120 pounds. Um, it really has a, you know, right away you're almost taken aback by its like trunk-like nose. Um, and so that's why I'm not sure if I want to call my daughter Saiga. Um, you reminded me of however, what a Saiga looks like when you were born. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so with that trunk-like nose, it actually has um, downward pointing nostrils. And that's actually kind of key to their, it's one of their adaptations in the sense where um, their nose acts like a filter. Uh, during the dry uh, summers, um, so it's keeping out dust and whatnot, as well as uh, helping to cool blood, um, which is you know key to avoid overheating. Um, and on the contrary, during the winter, it does the opposite. Um, it heats cold air uh, before it's carried to the lungs, um, which is really, really interesting. Um, the males are the only six to have horns, and so uh, they're a bovid species. Um, Throughout the year, there's two distinct um, coat uh, molts, you could say. Uh, one in the spring, what they when they shed, they have like they're you know when they're shedding their thick winter fur, and then the um, so during the summer they have like a browner coat, and then leading up to the autumn, that's when they start putting on their winter coat again. Um, they look very distinct between the summer and winter. Um, so in the realm of taxonomy, um, it was actually previously believed that there were two species of Saiga. Uh, the Mongolian species was just kind of like a separated enclave of uh, Saigas in Mongolia, a little bit, I want to say, southeast of the Altai foothills. Um, and then, of course, these, like the, the dominant Central Asian one that we think of that ranges throughout Kazakhstan and Russia and so forth. Uh, so furthermore, uh, gen genetic research in the last about 10 to 15 years, I want to say, have demonstrated that there are actually several different subspecies in distinct populations. And as we're going forward with the podcast, we'll be able to talk a little bit more about that. So where could we historically find uh, Saiga before um, Jonah? Yeah, so like you said, they have experienced pretty dramatic distribution changes, um, particularly in recent times. So... Historically, they occurred across the grassland steppes and semi-deserts from Southeast Asia to Central Asia, or I'm sorry, Southeast Europe to Central Asia, and then, you know, basically from modern-day Romania to Northwestern China and Mongolia. And if you look at a historical map, um, which we'll have a bunch of links in the show notes that will have, you know, links to resources where there's historical maps... Um, it, they kind of have a pretty narrow latitudinal range. So meaning that it doesn't go very far north and it doesn't go very far south. They're in this sort of narrow strip across from Eastern Europe or, um, yeah, Eastern Europe to, uh, Eastern Asia, because that's where these grassland steps were. Um, yeah. Basically, and we'll talk a little bit more about the specifics of their habitat preference in a few. But in the past few decades in particular, um, like within our lifetime, basically, the Saiga's distribution has been reduced by an estimated 95%, according to some studies, um, which is one reason that it's critically endangered. Um, and that's 
primarily due to habitat loss, hunting, and climate-induced mortality events, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, but so they used to have this huge range, like we said, and they sort of first started to disappear from best that researchers can tell from southeastern Europe in the late 18th century because of habitat destruction, because new people, uh, pastor, pastoral people will, were settling the area there. And it's a very interesting um, social and environmental situation. And we'll include a, a paper that sort of covers this. But basically, there was a, this social climate in southeastern Europe that led to the decline of Saiga in the region at the end of the 18th century and during the 19th century because people were coming in and settling it and not only just, you know, disturbance of habitat, but also livestock was destroying habitat, people were hunting them. So it's just really interesting how the politics of that period led these people to be, to settle in this area and it completely, you know, change the distribution of the saiga because of this social situation if i could just uh, jump in real quick um for th so you're talking about the social political context so if we're looking in um eastern europe at that time south you know more southern around the black sea so we're thinking of modern day romania ukraine uh these are all places that um at this point in you know 18th century are starting to fall underneath um, Russian influence and whatnot, so more sedentary people uh, that are not that used to be in this area used to be uh, more like uh, nomadic peoples. But when the Russians started coming, more and more nomadic people were coming into closer contact with each other, and so kind of like you said, um, really led to the kind of habitat destruction interest you know that we're talking about. But primarily, it used to be you know uh, people of the what was known as the Golden Horde. Uh, so people of Mongolian background and whatnot that had occupied that land. Um, and then, at, you know, during the 17th and 18th century, then we start to see more and more incursions of people of um, Slavic origin, you could say. And previously they weren't in that area, which is really interesting because th today we think of those places as very predominantly uh, Slavic, you know, think of like, Ukraine and whatnot. So just a little history uh, buff uh, geek that I can't, you know, stop myself from <laughs> No, it's, it's it's really cool, and if people are really interested in this, I think this to read this paper that will include the citation to the saiga is, uh, of course, most species are influenced. Well, all species are influenced by what people are doing, but this particular social and political climate, how it led to the extirpation of saiga from the area, is pretty. It's a good case study, basically. Yeah, I think that's a fair yeah. Um, and during the 19th and 20th century, sort of similar range reductions occurred throughout Western and Central Asia because of agricultural expansion and, again, degradation of habitat from livestock. Um, and then by the mid-20th mid century, Saiga were completely extirpated from China, and a population in Western Mongolia became isolated, and that's where we were, Camden was talking about how people used to think that the Mongolian population was a separate species. Um, and so basically the range contraction in the past hundred years has led to four isolated metapopulations in Western and Central Asia, and then plus the fifth population in Mongolia. So the, the four in um, Western and Central Asia are there's one in Russia, which is like to the Northwest of the Caspian Sea. 
And then there are three populations, metapopulations in Kazakhstan, which Kazakhstan is basically the, the stronghold for the species at this point. Um, so tell us a little bit about their ecology because the, their ecology and understanding, understanding their behavioral and reproductive ecology is really important in understanding the conservation issues that surround the species. Yeah, sounds good. It'd be my pleasure. So, um, like a lot of grassland species, um, uh, the are definitely nomadic. Um, you know, so they have, you know, cute, like migratory tendencies and, um, that definitely is influences their ecology. So you know, going back to their habitat, we're thinking dry grasslands, um, you know, with low vegetation, this allows for quick escape. Um, and the, generally speaking, um, you can say that Saiga will avoid broken terrain or dense cover. They really like open uh, cover. It's easier to see spot predators and so forth. Um, so, you know, talking about their migratory nature, um, you know, it's definitely a question of summer and winter ranges. So fluctuating in between the two and migrating between the two. Um, move north uh, in the summer and south in the winter, um, kind of like a lot of migratory species. Historically, we, you know, the, um, the migratory herds were observed in the hundreds of thousands. I can't imagine what that view would have looked like, you know, uh, you know, descending upon the Eurasian grassland to see hundreds of thousands of saiga migrating. I, that would be breathtaking. I mean, you can think of American bicyclists or the Serengeti. And I think it's a lot of times people equate um, that part of Eurasia as the Serengeti, you know, in the sense where you, this, you know, this massive population of uh, an antelope species used to be. Nowadays, you're really looking at about thousands migrating, which is still, you know, would be impressive to see, but really has definitely um, diminished uh, from years prior. It, um, it's safe to say that each population migrates a different, you know, definitely will migrate different distances, um, you know, because depending on different circumstances. Uh, however, the maximum is about 700 and I don't know, maybe 100, 745 miles. Uh, so you're looking at about 1,200 kilometers over about you know, a period of two to three months. Um, the migration extent is definitely dependent on the environmental conditions of the specific year. Um, it has been known for some herds, for example, to not migrate in certain years because of you know what's going on. Uh, wintering grounds are areas where there's minimal snow cover. Think about this as a goat-sized animal, so if there's a lot of snow, it's gonna hard for them to get around. Um, and so it's also an idea of, you know, how it's, it's also important to them, you know, what wintering ground will allow them access to grass and, you know, forbs and whatnot, you know, not too thick so that they can paw at it and get it. Um, herds generally assemble in the spring uh, during the calving, se cal um, calving season, um, but summer movement and gatherings depend largely on precipitation and availability of water, which of course varies regionally. Um, local, locally, uh, you could say that saiga herds uh, will definitely move nomadically within their summer and winter ages. Uh, this is, of course, based on food and water availability. Yeah, so you, when, like each population, you know, we don't want to go into the details of each population because it's just not necessary, but each population, you know, experiences different conditions because they live in different areas, obviously. And so the ecology varies between the populations and varies between years based on food and precipitation and, um, you know, snow cover. So it, you know, we're just kind of generalizing this stuff here, but it, it's just uh, a lot, it's 
variable between the populations basically is what I'm trying to say. Right. Um, and same with, you know, their reproductive ecology, the timing of it. So, you know, one thing we'll talk about when we start talking about the population size and changes in population is that Saiga have a, an amazing ability for their populations to recover very rapidly. And one reason for that is because they have an early sexual maturity. So females can be sexually mature at seven to eight months, which is this within the same, you know, the that breeding season after they're born, they can breed. And then males are sexually mature at like one and a half to two years. So that's pretty early. So that means that there's a lot of um, reproduction going on in any given year, which helps the population to, you know, grow quickly. So in November, after they've um, migrated from their summer areas, they're already on their wintering grounds, harems of females start to to form and males will sort of collect harems as many as 30 females and they'll defend them from other males and the males will actually have gotten there even earlier than the females they'll have left the summer range early got to the the rut rutting area so that they could sort of establish themselves in anticipation of the females arriving and so this you know normal kind of unglet mating system with the harems, the males are fighting over females and protecting them and stuff. Um, but one interesting thing about the saiga is that they have sort of all the mating is concentrated within a very short period of time, maybe about ten days at the end of December or the beginning of January. Again, depending on the the conditions, the environmental conditions. Um, but so you know. Because all the mating is occurring in one period, that means that most of the calves are going to be born in the same period, and that's sort of how they time it, or plan it, if you will. Not like they're planning it, but... Um, <laughs> they're counting. They're like, like okay, calendar. everyone, let's get ready, and have sex. <laughs> exactly. Um, Sound like Woodstock there for a second. <laughs> Basically, that's what it is, yeah. Um, except there's a lot more competition and stuff um <laughs> yeah i guess you could say that yeah. um so then following the rut you know the females break up into smaller groups and the males and they spend the winter you know inter in their wintering ranges and like you said they're can be nomadic within their wintering ranges depending on the conditions you know they're basically just always looking for food so they're just going where the best quality food is um but males during the rut don't really feed that frequently. So after the rut, they're in really poor condition, which is normal for ungulates that live in temperate areas like this with seasonal breeding. Um, but in the saiga, there's can be really high mortality in winter because the males are in such poor condition. And that can lead to you know, just on a year-by-year basis, the population structure can change pretty dramatically. Um, so females are pregnant for about five months, and so that means that calves are born between late April and early June, but they're generally born within a five- to eight-day period. So like I said, because they have these mass, this mass mating, they also have this mass calving, basically. And the calving, the time and the location of the calving is generally coincides with favorable food and water conditions. So they're going to go 
where the best conditions are at the best time so that their young have the best chances of survival. Um, and this, this is sort of a strategy that isn't uncommon in wildlife for them to just saturate an area with young because when they do that, you know, the chances of survival for each individual calf are better off because there's so many other options for predators like, like wolves, cause wolves are their primary predators. And, um, you know, depending on the area and the conditions in a given year during calving, saiga density can be as anywhere from 200 to 600 antelope per square kilometer. Holy cow. Which is crazy. Um, that's a, that's a lot of saiga in one spot. And then, you know, add on top of that all the calves they're having. Um, and interestingly, I was reading a study from Kazakhstan that found that calving grounds are, in more recent times, have been increasingly, the selection of calving grounds has been increasingly influenced by human disturbance rather than environmental conditions. So they normally choose, like I said, where the best food is and water and stuff. But now sort of the human disturbance factor is sort of trumping the the environmental conditions there, you know, that it's almost like that's more important to them where there's the least disturbance. That's where we're going to go, where they're going to go, even if it, the forage quality is a little less. Um, so again, just showing the influence that people can have on this species. Um, so neonates are when, when they're born, they're about seven pounds or three and a half kilos, which is the largest calf size of any ungulate relative to the mother's size. That's kind of interesting, um, random fact. And I don't really know why that is. Um, I think just so that they are more mobile sooner because for the first four to five days, they're hidden and largely immobile, just laying, hiding in the grass. And then they start to follow their mothers at seven to 10 days. And then by two to three weeks, they're they form nursery herds with other calves and that are attended to by some of the mothers. Um, weaning occurs about four months. And then, like I already said, the females <laughs> three months later can already be breeding three months after they've weaned. So they just hop to it. Um, and then by 20 months, the females are fully grown. And then by 24 months, the males are fully grown. So very fast developing species, which is, is good for the issues that we're going to talk about here shortly. Um, so, you know, normally, naturally, in the absence of selective poaching for males, which we'll talk more about, an adult population structure is generally skewed towards females. So 50 to 60% of the population will be females after the rut, just because of that high male mortality after rut and when they're in poor condition. Um, so female fertility is also high, which is another thing that allows them to grow rapidly. And as Camden can, we'll talk about in a few minutes, you know, if there's selective poaching for males, even though females have high fertility in the absence of sexually mature males, which have been poached, uh, the population structure can change pretty significantly in a, in a harmful way. Um, so... Basically, we're talking about 
an endangered, a critically endangered species here, but we haven't talked about why they're critically endangered at all. So other than their distribution changes. So why don't you talk to us about the sort of dramatic changes in population sizes over the years? Sure. Um, it's definitely a grim affair uh, when you look at it. But um, So the global population has fluctuated quite significantly since the beginning of the 20th century. Um, fortunately, sega populations have the ability to recover, like we said, quite rapidly, as evidenced by um, the, an increase from perhaps several thousand in the early 20th century to about 540,000 in Russia and about 1.3 million in Kazakhstan by 1960. Uh, this was definitely due to legal protections that began in 1919. Um, and then, however, uh, jumping into the about 1950s, uh, commercial harvesting started resuming at that time and you know, lasted about until 1990. Uh, in the 1970s, the total population was estimated to 1.25 million, so you know, population including both Russian and Kazakh, Kazakh population. Um, from the 1970s onward, um, really the Saiga, Sega, a saga, I should say, it's a nice tongue twister. Um, has, you know, has ensued. The Russian population fell to about 26,000 by 2000, um, four percent of the estimated population in 1990. Uh, so, as a result of this, uh, the political and economic change brought on by the collapse um, by the U.S. of the USSR. Um, you know, it was what I want to say is this is due to because of the collapse of the USSR. You know, this is because of there was weakening of protections. You know, a lot of economic hardship. Uh, which meant to poaching and as well as hunting for meat. And uh, we'll learn here pretty soon that poaching is generally for the horn trade. Um, so those are only worn by the males. Uh, borders were opened up, uh, which enhanced opportunities for you know, trading saiga horns. Um, and we'll talk about where those markets are here pretty soon. Uh, the selective harvest of males for the horn trade uh, left a population skewed heavily towards females, and um, you know you're pretty much looking uh, bordering on reproductive collapse. Uh, you know this similar phenomenon had you know uh, collapses occurred in Kazakhstan at this time. Um, however, the situation in Mongolia was more positive as the population uh, more than about quadrupled from 1980 to 2000. Uh, however, this is according to just you know, some sources and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about that, you know, what their, their status is now and you know, how they're viewed in the international community? Um, yeah, so basically it was, like you said, the, by 2000 the population was way down. And that it seems like that's sort of when everyone had a wake-up call. I mean, people knew that the population was declining um, since the 60s, but it was sort of after these... I mean, and they were doing, um, you know, survey... They've been doing surveys in parts of Kazakhstan since the 60s. So they've, you know, almost, so to say, had a pulse, the finger on the pulse of the population, so they were able to see what was happening. Um, but it wasn't like that in every one of the populations. Um, and you know, some, especially Mongolia, the methods for surveying were different. So you, it's not really comparable between years or to other populations because you're using different techniques. And so that's why the, the numbers for Mongolia aren't as solid. All we know is that it did increase pretty significantly. 
And so following this recognition in the early 2000s that the population had essentially collapsed, um, it was uplisted from a status of low risk to critically endangered on the IUCN red list um, in 2002. And so going from straight from low risk to critically endangered is... It's weird to me that they didn't, like, earlier uplist it. Um, right. Anyways, it, it, they were in a pretty dire situation, essentially, um, when, when something like that happens, when they go from low risk to critically endangered all of a sudden. And then, but, you know, since then, populations have increased due to conservation measures that have been implemented. Um as a result of everyone having this wake-up call. So between 2003 and 2010, one of the Kazakhstan populations increased by 76%, which is awesome. Um, the overall global population has increased, even though there's been um, decreases in the Russian population due to poaching. So, you know, the population's going up in Mongolia and some of the Kazakhstan areas, but it's going, it's gone down in Russia, unfortunately. And, you know, some of our listeners may have heard of the saga before because in recent years they've made the news because there's been several major die-offs, like major, um, which we'll talk about here in a second. But these die-offs have been pretty significant setbacks in the population recovery because, you know, mass, there's just been mass mortality events that have wiped out a significant portion of the population. But, you know, since then, since these die-offs, during the surveys, they've demonstrated that the species is really resilient and the population has already increased significantly, which we'll talk about um, shortly. Um, so, well, actually, I'll talk about it right now. So just in 2018, they did aerial surveys of three, the three Kazakhstan populations. And on average, across all of them, they found an average... 40% increase just from 2017. So a 40% increase in the population in one year. And that's because, like we've said, they can reproduce early. And I think I failed to mention that they also have twins. Um, that's It's most common for females to give birth to twins. Oh, yeah, that twins. is true. Yeah, that is key, yeah. So all of a sudden, there's just a ton of new saiga in the population, you know, and of course they have to survive as young ones, but then they reach seven months old and they can breed. And by the time they're a year old, they could have already be giving birth. Um, so, you know, in one year, a lot can happen. And then from 2017 to 2019, from these aerial surveys, they found that the Kazakhstan population has increased from 153,000 in 2017 to 334,000 just this year. So that's a that's an awesome increase. That's more than double in two years. Um, and the Mongolian population increased to about 11,000 in 2016, which is very high compared to what it used to be. But then in 2016, there was a disease outbreak, and then they dropped back down to 5,000, which is probably what they're at about now. So um, right now, based on just these recent Kazakhstan surveys, the population estimate is probably something like 345,000. Um, and remember that we, Camden just said that in 1960, just in Kazakhstan, 
there was 1.3 million. <laughs> so it's awesome. Like the population has increased significantly in, you know, recent years, but just keep it in perspective. In 1960, when the population was still low, there was 1.3 million just in Kazakhstan. <laughs> I know that's crazy. Um, so let's let's dive back into you know you're you're mentioning about die-offs for example let's let's dive into uh, that subject it's actually um, like a fairly well documented uh, phenomenon um, so set aside you know aside from large-scale poaching um, Sega populations uh, recovery as a whole um, can also be set by uh, mass die-offs that are caused by you know, not, no longer being caused by anthropogenic uh, you know, reasons, but because of you know natural reasons such as climate, climatic conditions. Um, in Kazakhstan and probably, of course, other areas, historically speaking, uh, across the range, uh, cyclical patterns of unusually harsh winters, um, uh, usually winter conditions every 10 to 11 years, um, you know, they, they oscillate, can lead to really high... Um, Saiga mortality. Uh, this phenomenon is known as, I believe it's pronounced like uh, jut, uh, jut, and um, so it's really the idea that uh, during these winters you have high, um, there's a lot of uh, water, ice, um, you know, deep, dense snow uh, that's preventing Saiga from accessing vegetation, so therefore they're starving to death. Uh, Juts uh, sometimes precede spring or summer droughts too. Um, therefore, you know, really for you know, decreasing their chances of survival. Um, these periods of jute are have been well documented, like I had said, um, as you know, as had and ha um, as has saga mortality. Uh, in the 1970s, um, it was you know noticed that there was really several uh, periods of jute. Uh, in 1971 to 1972, um, 400,000 dead saiga were counted in just that one year. Um, and then again in 1975 through 1976, another 100,000 dead, dead saiga were counted. Um, so these events during that period ended up resulting in a 50% decline in the um, Kazakh population. Um, and then furthermore, as many as 45,000 died in 1985 and 1988. So this, this, is, this is not just, you know, occasional animals dying off. This is huge populations. Like, and so just the in that 1971 to 1972, 400,000, that's larger than the estimated population right now in the entire world. Today. <laughs> exactly. All just dying at once. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely crazy. I mean, I'm sure the wolves were happy, but... Yeah. I mean... <laughs> But it's definitely, yeah, it's, it's absolutely flabbergasting. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to fathom. I mean, we're throwing out these numbers, but to actually go and witness that, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Um, so going back, uh, in these conditions, you know, 50 to 70% of the sexually mature males uh, can die. So this also, you know, leads to issues with population recovery uh, because then, you know, you're having that issue of skewing again, you know, to females. And so it's a, you know, it's a very difficult process. It takes time for... It, you know, for the population to recover. Yeah, especially because, um, you know, you can have, okay, you can have the young males that are like a year old, but if they're not sexually mature, then they're not contributing to the population. So it's just going to delay any population recovery. And then, you know, a couple years later, you have another dude and hundreds of thousands more die. So it's just like, bam, bam, bam. I know, it's crazy. Um. 
so in addition to suffering from zoots, these mass mortalities, they, they suffer from several diseases that can cause mass mortality events as well. And in the 19, from the 1950s to the 1970s, there were several outbreaks of foot and mouth disease in Kazakhstan that resulted in several mass mortality events. Um, one in particular that was the most striking to me was in 1967, an outbreak of foot and mouth disease resulted in the death of 50,000 calves, um, which was, the I think, of the numbers that I looked at, was the worst of the death toll of the foot and mouth disease. So it's not as bad as the zoot of 1971 to 72, but 50,000 calves all dying at once is still pretty significant for any animal population, really. Um, another major disease that they suffer from and more recently have suffered from is pastorolosis, which is a bacterial infection. Um, so past, it's from a type of specific type of pastorella bacteria. And particularly in the 1980s, pastorolosis killed Saiga on a incredible scale. Um, so in 19, you know, I'm just going to list out these years just to demonstrate again, just like the seventies with the zoots, how the eighties were pretty rough with disease. So in May, 1981, just in May, 1981, over 70,000 saiga were recorded dead, 99% of which were females and calves. Um, that's a lot of dead females and calves. And then in February to March 1984, over 100,000 saiga corpses were counted. So in the zoot of um, 1975 to 76, that's like the winter. So that entire winter, 100,000 were killed or were died from starvation. Just in this February to March of 1984, 100,000 were counted dead from pastorolosis. Um, in May 1988, an estimated 270,000 died from the infection. Just in one oh month. Oh, my goodness. Like, this is insane. <laughs> this is really insane. Um, and there, there were some other smaller die-offs that I didn't include because they weren't as dramatic, but still tens of thousands died in other years. And then in 2010 and 2011, there were some smaller die-offs of calves as well caused by pastorolosis. So um, it's a bacterial infection. Um, but, you know, researchers have found that the bacteria is found in some individuals as chronic carriers. So, you know, they're not showing any effect of the bacteria. The, the pathogen isn't affecting them, but they're able to keep the pathogen alive between these periods of outbreak, um, which I'll talk about in a second, is probably caused by certain climatic conditions. Um, but most recently, where the saga has made the news has been in... Um, some other major die-offs related to a pastorella bacteria. So in 2015, more than 200,000 saiga mysteriously died in central Kazakhstan. So the difference between these other die-offs is that, you know, they knew that it was the winter conditions that killed them. They knew that it was pastorellosis. In 2015, all of a sudden, simultaneously, just 200,000 saiga died. And they didn't know why. And... 
it wasn't until later as they were, you know, looking at samples and looking at the the signs of this um, mass mortality event that they determined that it was hemorrhagic septicemia, which was caused by a, a different pastorella bacteria. Um, and they, in the paper, which I was reading, they, they thought that, you know, even though it's a different pastorella species, they thought that it might be a similar thing to what happened um, in the 80s. And so after this, you know, mass mortality event in 2015. Catastrophic, yeah. Yeah, basically the Kazakhstan population was left at 31,000 saigo. Oh my goodness. Which, you know, in some of these other mass mortality events, more than that died in a single month. <laughs> so one other event <laughs> could, you know, almost make the species go extinct like that. Um, then over in Mongolia in 2016, over half of the Mongolian population died um, due to a virus spread from domestic sheep and goats, which is what I said they went from 11,000 to, to 5,000 just from that virus. Um, so going back to the, the... So that's just two years in a row, bam, bam, for Saiga as a species. But um, so there, you know, a lot of people were working around the clock to figure out what caused this 2015 die-off. And... They found that it was this pastorella bacteria, and they found that it's it's naturally found in healthy cygas. It's commensal, so it, it you know it lives within them, and it doesn't have any negative effect. Um, but based on you know sort of the large scale nature and the simultaneous onset of the symptoms of the the um, pathogen and the just the mass death that was simultaneous that sort of suggests that it was something environmental because it's not like all of these saga are coming into contact with each other something is going on in that environment that caused them all to die at the same time and in this case they found that it was higher than normal temperatures and higher humidity than normal and so that triggered the pastorellosis um and they think it's similar to how the other pastorella bacteria caused the die-offs in the 80s. Um, so basically, this finding that the high temperature and high humidity cause this mass die-off shows that they're really sensitive to small changes in climate, um, which obviously poses a problem in a changing climate. Um, and the fact that there have just been so many of these mass mortality events that have been influenced by climate in recent times is, is concerning for the survival of the species. So basically, saiga conservation has to proceed with the expectation that there's going to be more mass mortality events like those that have already been observed, which is like, how do you, how do you manage for that? How do you plan for that? That's, how, do you, uh, how do you plan for die-offs? You know what I mean? Yeah, how many are going to die? When's it going to be, you know? It's, it's pretty crazy, and I, I can't think of any other species that has this kind of issue surrounding their conservation where it's like, you know it's going to happen, but you just don't know when or where. It's like a curse almost, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just comes back periodically. And on top of that, so not only does it, you know, do they have to deal with, you know, all these you know, population fluctuations because of, you know, conditions and natural occurring things. They also have to deal with poaching on top of that. Um, you know, so 
not only like yeah like i just said they're dealing with all this they have to deal with a very hefty threat of you know poaching for their horns you know so this is males it's you know particularly targeting males um so it's really really a devastating perfect storm almost for at least you know populations of saiga um so the reason why you know they're poached is because the horns are thought to be you know um, beneficial in traditional chinese medicine so this you know fuels the trade um you know all ranges states you know so all countries that are comprised within um you know, the, the Saiga distribution range have really strict laws against hunting and domestic, you know, hunting them um, and domestic trade for those horns. It is strictly, um, it, um, however, there is a very limited legal trade um, all between um, Asian non range states, so other countries that do not make up their indigenous ranges. Um, between 1995 and 2004, sites countries uh, with Saigas reported horn experts uh, that were equivalent to 259 to 1,000 to 465,000 male Saigas. Uh, so that's just like the size of a major diode on top of yeah. other regular diodes. Basically, the, just, the size of the entire population right now. Exactly, was found in horns. Just in males. That's just of males. Yeah, I know. That's what's crazy. It, 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 it's so mind-boggling. Um, the largest importers of saiga, you know, saiga horn, which, you know, typically China, of course. However, Singapore, Japan, Malaysia. Uh, it's safe to say, you know, places like Malaysia and Singapore is because there's, you know, really large uh, ethnic um, Chinese populations there. So that's, you know, really why, you know, they're flowing to those countries. Um, since then, there has been moratoria um, on saiga hunting due to recent population declines. Um, so, but that really obviously doesn't stop illegal, you know, hunting, you know, and the, the illegal trade still persists um, with all, all populations except Mongolia. Um, for example, a seizure back in October of 2015 by a Chinese border official uh, comprised about five tons of saiga horn. This is, you know, it's really hard sometimes, you know, it's hard to be positive for the future, especially with such an awesome creature. Um, it is really impossible to accurately measure the extent and the impact of poaching um, since it's an illegal activity. So there's obviously no government-funded research being done on who's doing it. You know, uh, you know they're not keeping records, the poachers, I should say. Um, you know, poaching seems to have declined since the turn of the century. Um, but this is also maybe just because there's less saiga. You know, there's declining saiga populations as a whole. Uh, you know, um, so it's not really a you know not necessarily a positive thing. Um, in the early 2000s, horns were purchased from local people for about 180 dollars per kilo, uh, per kilo, um, and then sold for 800 kilos in places like Malaysia and Singapore. So, you know, for uh, that's your incentive right there for doing it. I mean, that's just that's literally easy money, you know, for people who might, you know, be in economic straits or those who are not, who are just profiteering it purely and simply. Um, so in Russia, a Sega carcass was actually sold for, um, you know, for a comparison for you, it was actually sold for about 11 to $13 to local people for meat. So in a carcass really isn't worth anything, but it's, you know, the horns. Um, yeah, an entire, like, can you imagine that? An entire animal body, 11 to $13. Like, that's how much one little piece of steak is. 
Yeah, I know. That's like a pound of lamb right there. And you got a whole entire goat-sized antelope right there. That is that is crazy. Um, in Kazakhstan, uh, anti-poaching can actually be really dangerous because, you know, it's very lucrative. Um, numerous rangers have been killed in recent years. Uh, so it's really no laughing matter. It's really, really serious. Um, poachers often slash tires of OT anti-poaching vehicles, uh, burn down ranger cabins. And, you know, this is, you know, it seems really akin to some of the dangerous, you know, poaching scenarios that can be found in Africa. You know, it's really very, very similar. Yeah. It's the whole like trade and poaching thing. It, you know, we hear all this stuff about the rhino horn and the lion bones and ivory and stuff which are, is obviously a big issue but like it's like the same kind of thing is going on here where these local people are making you know some money on it and then it, by the time it reaches the consumer it's just being sold for astronomical prices um and i mean it's it's really like a war we you know we could talk more a lot about the we could talk more about the details of the anti-poaching efforts and stuff, but you know, you guys could look that up on your own. Um, the Saiga Conservation Alliance has a lot of information, and they they post a lot of stuff about their rangers. And in fact, I think just this last week they posted that one of their rangers was killed. Um, so it's it's a it's a serious thing, just like it is in Africa, where it's you know almost like this this war on poaching because. It's so lucrative for this these saiga horns um, that again, just like the rhino horn and the lion bone, like they don't actually have any <laughs> medical properties. They're just made out of keratin. <laughs> um, so to kind of wrap wrap it up, um, you know, on top of the mass mortality, which is you know a looming threat. On top of the poaching, you also have habitat fragmentation that's threatening Saiga, which is a problem, has been a problem for, you know, the past couple centuries, like we talked about how their entire distribution has been fragmented. But because they're a migratory species, railroads, roads, agriculture, they can be barriers um, for Saiga during their migration, and they could get, you know, hit by cars, hit by railroads. They can, you know, not, you know, go in the wrong direction because the agriculture makes them go around or, or whatever. Um, so it's not as big of an issue, but for any migratory species, you have to be worried about habitat connectivity, especially between their winter and summer range when they so depend on um, the quality of the forage and getting there at the right time. And just because it's such a long distance that they're traveling as well. Um, whereas in the past when, you know, there wasn't so much encroachment on the steppe, hundreds of thousands of Saiga didn't have a problem with migrating between their summer and winter ranges. Um, and then as always, we got domestic livestock working against them. Um, you know, livestock can compete with Saiga, especially during the winter when, you know, things are a little rougher for getting forage, it, forage and stuff. But livestock can just be overgrazing or 
more often is the case that they're trampling vegetation that the saiga like to eat. So the saiga eat low-lying vegetation, and you have horses come through and trample. I think in one study I was looking at, they trample like 50% of the saiga forage in an area, which is going to be an issue when, you know, especially in the winter when they, I mean, yes, they're nomadic and they can move on to another area, but, you know, the snow conditions or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I... It definitely weakens their, you know, you know, uh, chances of actually finding a proper place to forage. Yeah, and yeah, I think... I think our, by now our listeners know how I feel about domestic livestock. In addition to just direct competition, they transmit disease like we saw in the Mongolian population where they got this virus from domestic sheep and goats and it wiped out more than half the population. And so this is not an uncommon thing in ungulates where they're coming into contact with domestic livestock and whether it be at water sources or, or what have you, and they get these diseases that they wouldn't normally have and it can have a like the case of mongolian subspecies that has a pretty significant effect all because of domestic animals um i know yeah like you said it's just a it's a perfect storm that is working against them basically um yeah so like we like I said, we could talk a lot more about the the poaching stuff, um, but we, you know we'll have resources in the the show notes. Um, particularly, there's a, a website that's called the Saiga Resource Center that has like I'm pretty sure every paper ever published on Saiga. They have reports. They have Saiga news. Um, yeah, so you can you can find everything there, and we'll have some other articles. Um, about the horn trade or just about the mass mortality events from 2015. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to add Camden? Um, I'm not sure. I think we, you know, we covered it definitely in a very general way. There's still a lot to learn about them. Like you said, um, Saiga news, which is a really cool newsletter that they publish in multiple language. I think Russian, Kazakh, Uzbek and in English, uh, it comes out, I think, I think quarterly, I think, I'm not sure. Uh, it's a really great outlet, you know, to learn information on top of the, the Sega Resource Center. Um, it's, it's a really, you know, there's a lot to learn and it's a really important um, species to follow and to uh, survey, definitely, I would say. Um, and um, hopefully, you know, things change for the, you know, in a positive manner. But like we were talking earlier, it's really hard to say because it's just like we're, you know, about ready to get hit by another that mass die out. So it's definitely like one of those things where you kind of feel like you're walking on eggshells when you're talking about Saiga. Um, but hopefully, you know, for our listeners, um, if they weren't familiar with it, now they're more familiar and they're more interested in it. There is pretty interesting conservation efforts out there, like we were talking about the Saiga, that work in like places like Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. And uh, it's pretty neat. Well, there's a lot of local communities that are really proud about their Saiga population. So it's really neat to learn about them. Yeah, and there's also a lot of research going on. Like I said, since the 50s, they've been, you know, surveying these populations and they just do a lot of population monitoring so that they can understand the dynamics because they are so dynamic. They can change, you know, from one year to the next, there could be major changes. 
and understanding that will help with their conservation. But, you know, like we said, it's, it's hard to implement management and plan for things when you don't know what's going to happen. So just understanding maybe patterns of these die-offs and, and things like that. But um, because the climate-related threat is um, so serious, you know, how can we, what can we do about that at this point? I know. Um, yeah. So anyways, that's the Saiga. Really cool antelope. I know Camden and I have been wanting to talk about them for a while now. Um, so if you have any questions or comments about the show or about this episode, or if you want to recommend what endangered species we do next or another topic, um, we'd like to hear from you. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram, um, or you can email us at conservationchronicles at gmail.com. Um, you can find our episodes on conservationchronicles.podbean.com and, um, look out for more episodes. We're going to, our new schedule is going to be publishing on Tuesday. Um, hopefully we can stick to that. Um, and yeah, well, if we didn't, I don't remember if Marianne and I said it last time, but we're just going to do bi-weekly episodes. So every two weeks on Tuesday, you can, um, check out, look for episodes just so we're not trying to overcommit ourselves like we did last season. Um, lessons are learning. Yeah. Lessons are learning. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And thanks for, um, joining me today, Camden. Yeah. Thanks for having me all. It's always a pleasure to talk about Saiga for sure. (laughs) Always a pleasure to be on the show.